And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Daniel Dreisbach. He is professor at American University in Washington, D.C. He earned a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Oxford and also a Juris Doctor degree from University of Virginia. Uh, Dr. Dreisbach, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You just wrote a book, and the title of that book is Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. And I found out about this book in a little bit of a roundabout way, I suppose. There was an article that appeared from Grove City College. I'm on their mailing list, and you had written an article for them regarding this subject of reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. So um, I'm wondering if you could get us started today. Um, let me ask a really simple question. What, what kind of an influence did the Bible have on our Founding Fathers? Well, that's a very good question to start with. Let's first make the observation that there was no book in the American founding period, and we're talking here about the last third or so of the 18th century, this time in American history when uh, Americans fight for independence and, and, and write a constitution. Uh, there was no book at this time in American history that was more accessible, that was more authoritative uh, to the American public than the Bible. This would have been a book that uh, was found in many, if not most, homes. Uh, many Americans would have learned to read the Bible with uh, read, learned to read. Period with a Bible in front of them, so it was a part of their lives, and this includes the lives of those men and women who played a key role in securing American independence and, and forming our, our government. So it's a, an important part of the culture at that time. And so I don't think it should surprise us that it is going to have an influence on how they look at the world, how they think about politics. It's, it's going to speak to them about human nature, the, the, the role of government and authority, these kinds of questions which they are contemplating at this moment when they are forming a new government, a new constitutional republic. So is it safe to, would it be safe to say that it, it, it uh, rather profoundly or deeply uh, shaped the founders' understanding and, and their writings and speeches? Well, we always have to be a little cautious in, in painting with too broad a brush. Um, so the truth is uh, that the founders looked at the Bible from a variety of perspectives. Uh, I, w I think it's fair to say that all, uh, if, if not all, nearly all of them uh, held the Bible in very high regard. Some might have questioned its divine origins, but even those skeptical founders would have looked to the Bible as a useful handbook, a textbook for civic virtue, for ethics and morality and the like. But I think the vast majority of the founders, and certainly those in the founding generation, would have drawn extensively on the Bible, and not just in their general worldview, but more specifically in thinking about government, uh, thinking about what is the best form of government that, uh, that, that uh, sort of 
works with what we know about human nature, in particular man's fallen state, uh, the fact that we are sinful creatures. So, yes, this is a book that um, um, every learned person in this generation would have known and known well. And we do find the Bible uh, cited frequently uh, in their writings, in their speeches, uh, and in their general discourse. You know, you got me thinking, um, if a politician today, uh, a leader in government, were to start quoting sections from the Bible, there would be a whole bunch of people complaining that, hey, uh, we have separation of church and state. How did the founders view that in in their time frame? Well, I think this language or this phrase of separation of church and state, or sometimes you, we hear the metaphor of a wall of separation, this is an idea or a concept that has, has changed in its understanding rather dramatically over the course of the last uh, 200 years. Uh, I think when we, we look at the founding era, there's, there's hardly a hint that uh, the Constitution required the removal uh, the extraction of all mentions of faith or religion or, or God uh, from public life. In fact, uh, quite to the contrary, uh, this was a generation of Americans who viewed religion as playing a vital, an indispensable role in public life. Let me remind you of one of the great speeches in American political history, and that is George Washington's farewell address in 1796, when he said, of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now, that's a really strong affirmation of a vital role for religion in American public life. It's, it's really in the, in the 20th century and now in the 21st century that we encounter a, a new interpretation of uh, the Constitution, uh, the interjection of this language of separation of church and state that is used to exclude mentions of faith and deity uh, from public life. And, and I think this is an understanding of our constitutional tradition that uh, the founding generation would have been uh, rather uh, scornful of. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I'm also thinking back uh, to the time frame um, before the revolution. Um, wasn't there a um, great awakening, and how might that have affected people's uh, understanding and commitment and faith? You know, faith in the Lord and what would uh, affect their actions. This is a, a question that historians warmly debate, and that is, what was the impact of this religious revival that uh, swept the nation earlier in the 18th century, this revival that we often call the, the First Great Awakening? Um, and again, historians debate uh, exactly what was its influence. Uh, I think it is a, a revival that does inform uh, American uh, thinking about their identity as Americans. Uh, it does inform their, their language, their discourse. Uh, let's remember that uh, the, the, the Americans lived in 13 separate colonies, and for much of the uh, preceding generations, uh, the colonists did not necessarily 
think of themselves as being a single people, united people. But one of the effects of the Great Awakening is that you have these itinerant uh, evangelists traveling up and down the Atlantic seaboard, and they're beginning to knit together these diverse colonies in such a way that they begin to think about themselves as a common people with a common interest. And this is going to be terribly important uh, a few decades later when Americans uh, begin to uh, uh, face increasing tensions with uh, their colonial uh, powers in England. Not only that, uh, there's language and themes of the Great Awakening. The liberty that we find in Christ is an idea that translates itself in the minds of many Americans into liberty more broadly defined, including liberty in some political sense. And so uh, the language, the themes of the Great Awakening, I believe, is going to have an influence on the developments of the political contest between the colonists and, and England. And so I think it's hard to understand uh, what happens in the American independence movement without understanding this revival, this spiritual revival that preceded it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. What about the, um, the idea that, um, well, I don't know how to ask this really, but um, some might critique the American Revolution and say, oh, that's too rebellious. Uh, you did not have good grounds to do what you did. Have you thought about that, and is there any kind of insights you could give us regarding that? This is a wonderful question, and it's a challenging question, and it's certainly a question that was on the minds of Americans. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book, um, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, that looks at this um, tension uh, that Americans were grappling with between Romans chapter 13. You remember the first seven verses in Romans 13 speaks of uh, the need to be in submission to those in authority over you. Uh, and, and, you know, think about that language, and, and does that allow for, does that um, permit the kind of, of rebellion or resistance uh, that Americans are contemplating uh, in the aftermath of the Stamp Act and the various uh, uh, tensions that they encountered with Great Britain? Now, um, Americans also read their Bible and, and understood passages in Scripture where we saw uh, that God had directed individuals to resist, if you will, an unjust ruler or a tyrannical ruler. Um, just let me give you, there's a number of, of, of stories that we could look to in the Old Testament. Think of Daniel, you remember praying, uh, notwithstanding the decree of the king, or Rahab, uh, a number of other stories. But there's one in the New Testament that Americans uh, thought very deeply about, and that is a, a story that we read about in Acts chapter 5. And you remember uh, the apostles there in Jerusalem were preaching in the temple, and they were arrested and thrown in jail for doing so. And the angel of the Lord came and opened up the, the prison and, and said, go back and, and preach. And, and that's what they did when they were arrested again and brought before the rulers of Israel. And the ruler said, didn't we tell you not to preach? And they said, we must obey God rather than man. 
Now, there's an interesting sort of tension there between uh, a reading of Romans 13, be in submission, but there's also an understanding that that we must always honor and and uh, obey God rather than man, if man is instructing us to do those things that are contrary to God's will. And and many Americans, many patriotic Americans, believe that George III and Parliament in England were exhibiting the, the characteristics of a tyrannical rule. They were uh, ruling contrary to the very things that rulers are called by God to do. And so many saw in that a justification or a rationale uh, for resisting uh, Great Britain, notwithstanding those instructions that we read in Romans 13. So it's a very interesting uh, debate and, and struggle that um, is going on within the minds of Americans as they as they contemplate um, the, the oppression that they were feeling from Great Britain. Now, that's very helpful, very helpful indeed. And uh, as you were speaking here, I, I brought up Romans 13, and that is an extremely important piece of Scripture um, regarding uh, the civil magistrate and our responsibility to him, but also his responsibility um, to uh, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So there's, it seems to put in place some boundaries here. Romans 13 gives clear instructions to civil rulers to, to be a terror uh, to evil and to reward good. And there would have been many Americans in the founding era that would have read that language in Romans 13, and 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 they would have concluded that a ruler uh, who acts contrary to the best interests of the people deposes himself, abdicates, and is no longer a ruler. Therefore, citizens are no longer required to be in submission to that individual because. Again, they cease uh, to be a ruler as as scriptures identify the basic function of the ruler, mm-hmm. and so this was uh, the sort of the thinking uh, that prompted many Americans to to justify resistance to uh, George the Third in Parliament. Again, believing that George the Third was was acting the role of a tyrant. Well, that's very interesting. And um, today we're talking with Dr. Daniel Dreisbach professor at American University in Washington, D.C. We're talking about his book, uh, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and I think it's very appropriate to talk about this today because um, there's so many forces, so many people thinking that, oh, the Bible has no intersection at all with us, and it's even, quote-unquote, evil to bring it into the discussion. This would not have been the frame of mind of people in the 1700s, and that's what I think is coming out of this discussion so far. That's right. And and we're talking about a generation of Americans that looked to the Scriptures for insights into social order, political authority, and other concepts essential to the establishment of a new political system. Uh, They saw in Scripture uh, principles and precedents and models 
for various forms of government. Uh, they saw in Scripture, for example, a model for republicanism. Uh, they read this in Exodus chapter 18, the, the form of government that Moses begins to flesh out once the children of Israel have escaped uh, into uh, into uh, across the Red Sea, they see in Scripture models for separation of powers, due process of law and federalism, and they want to emulate these ideas in their new constitutional republic in the aftermath of independence. So uh, this is a generation that looked frequently to Scripture uh, for ideas um, and, and for models that that they want to incorporate into their political system. Yeah, and these models uh, flowing from Scripture itself um, are even advantageous to unbelievers. Correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, but there are a number of unbelievers, um, people that are not convinced of the claims of Christ, who uh, are on the scene and uh, still referencing the Scripture in their discourse. That's correct. I, I think. You know, uh, the Bible was simply part of the life of the mind in 18th century America. And so, uh, yes, it, uh, this is, uh, these Americans also look to uh, other sources of influence. They know history. They know about the Roman Republic, for example, and they study these other examples of republicanism. But among the sources that they're turning to are, are the uh, models that they found in Scripture. And this is particularly true on, uh, given the example of republicanism. They believed, as had other uh, Christians uh, for centuries before them, they believed that spelled out in the books of Moses, in particular Deuteronomy chapter 16, 17, and 18, they saw in those passages of Scripture a, a form of republican government. And over and over again in the various conventions and, and ratifying bodies and legislative bodies of the American founding period, there are references to these examples of, from Scripture, uh, and in particular this idea of republicanism. And, and, and I think in part this reassured them that republicanism was a form of government that enjoyed divine favor. Now, again, I don't want to suggest that that's the only source that they look to. They're studying other examples from history. But I think if we're going to understand what the founding project was all about, we have to include um, the Bible in that mix of ideas. You know, as I think about these men, and I'm, I, I know a very small amount, but the convictions that they had that led to the conclusion that um, – we have to fight against Britain. <laughs> um, the, the the principles, the foundation of what they're fighting for, I'm thinking, what if these guys lived today and saw the overreach of government and all the moral depravity that is being put forth as good, quote-unquote, what would they have done today? Well, I think it's a testament to this generation of Americans that here we are in the 21st century, and I think there's, there's still uh, general agreement that this was an extraordinary generation of Americans. Uh, they, the, the courage that it took to 
to stand up to what they believe to be British oppression uh, is rather remarkable. Yeah. And, uh, and, and again, uh, Americans have understood that and appreciated that. Uh, even today, uh, let's, let's look even at popular culture. You can find books about the fine founders on, on the best-selling list. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, one of the most popular musicals on Broadway at the moment is about one of the founding fathers. <laughs> Uh, and so I think that's a recognition that these were extraordinarily um, courageous, thoughtful, brave individuals. Uh, now, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's uh, worrisome that we find uh, voices in our society today who want to tear them down, uh, who want to belittle them. Mm-hmm. Now, we understand that they were fallen creatures like you and I. They have their flaws some rather significant flaws. But nonetheless, um, they did some remarkable things, and, and I think it's, uh, it's important that we remember that and, and, and honor their sacrifice and, and uh, uh, courage. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, what was their view on taxation? Um, you made reference before to Romans 13, and there it does instruct uh, the people, render therefore to owe all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. But there's a limit to taxation. What uh, kind of boundaries would the founders have had in their mind as to what constituted too much of a good thing is too much? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure that there's a a single view. that that we can point to. Uh, let's my the way I would respond to to this question is by first pointing out that uh, these Americans were almost exclusively Republican. I mean that with a small R. I'm not speaking of the modern political party, but they were Republican. And what did that mean? That meant at least two things uh, in the founding era. It meant that you believed in government by consent of the governed. And it meant that you believed in representative government. Now, it might have meant some other things to other people, but when you hear that word Republican as used in the founding era, it, it, it means at least those two things. And so uh, I begin there because I think the, the, the limiting uh, principle when it comes to taxation is that taxes must be imposed through through representative government that reflects the consent of the governed. And of course, this gets to the very heart of the colonists' grievances against Great Britain. They believe that they were being taxed without being represented in in the government. And, and that was a form of tyranny, uh, they believed. Um, so it's 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 taxation as it's expressed through this uh, representative process. That's the limitation on, on, on taxation. It's not whatever the king wants, whatever parliament wants. And there's a long history of parliament and the king and, 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 and their uh, squabbles over taxation and who gets to tax and when. It goes back centuries in England. And uh, Americans are, are a part of that story. And... Uh, and their grievance is tied to the very fact that they had been excluded from the process of being part of the discussion on what is appropriate tax, when is appropriate tax, 
and and I would approach it that way as approached to sort of saying, you know, what percentage of your income is appropriate to be taxed, that kind of thing. No, that's very helpful. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. Daniel Dreisbach. He's professor, American University, Washington, D.C. He's written the book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. And um, Dr. Dreisbach, if someone would like to get a copy of your book, how may they do that? Well, uh, it is published by Oxford University Press. Uh, you can go to uh, the University Press's website. It's, it's available there. But you will also find it at any of the major online uh, uh, resources and retailers, such as Amazon.com uh, and others. And so uh, you should have no, uh, no trouble. Just do a, a word search for Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and it should take you to one of those sites. Well, thank you very much, and it's been fun talking about this today. And Dr. Dreisbach, uh, we trust that uh, the Lord gives you many more years of uh, fruitful labors as you uh, do your scholarly studies. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Dear listener, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 